Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Before we get started, I wanted to let everybody know that Andrew Nance's book, Puppy Mind, Teaching Mindfulness to Children, is now available for pre-order from Penguin Random House. You can check out the show notes for his episode from Season 1, Episode Number 8, for a link so you can order your copy today. Now on with the show. You have to be scrappy to make it in business and in life, and nobody teaches scrappiness like Kimberly Weefling. Hear how she went from studying physics, to working as an executive in high-tech companies, to publishing books on project management and leadership for women, and running her own successful business, speaking, and leading training seminars internationally. Kimberly will share the formula she uses to structure her live presentations for maximum learning and audience engagement, explain how important mentoring and coaching have been in her work, and tell us how she built her business one face-to-face relationship at a time. Today, we're talking to Kimberly Weefling, and she does management consulting and business coaching and a wide variety of things. She's a very scrappy individual. Kimberly, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So I know you've kind of adopted this term scrappy. I'm curious how you're using it and how you came to it. Well, it's kind of a genetic thing. My family is all pretty scrappy, meaning we can get things done that people normally would think are impossible, but it's not always in a politically correct or socially acceptable way. So maybe it's a little messy and there's a few scrapes and bruises, but we get the job done. (laughs) I love that. And I know that you use that as the title for your book. Yes, I have a couple of books, actually. Scrappy Project Management was the first one where I talk about how to get things done in the real business world based on real projects that I'd seen go bad for completely predictable and avoidable reasons. And then I edited a couple of books my friends wrote, Scrappy Information Security, Scrappy Business Contingency Planning, and Scrappy General Management. And then I got a crazy idea. Why don't I and my 11 girlfriends write a Scrappy Women in Business book to share how ordinary women not the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. God bless them. We love them and admire them. But we're not all that privileged. But the normal, ordinary women of the world who just didn't give up and were successful because they just kept going. So we wrote a book called Scrappy Women in Business, Living Proof That Bending the Rules Isn't Breaking the Law. I like that. It's kind of a shame that there still need to be special books for women in in the business world. I remember when I was started my career, you know, you and I are the same generation. And so we started way back when. I remember my sister gave me a copy of a book called Games Mother Never Taught You, which was supposed to address that issue. (laughs) Really? Well, might surprise you to hear that it's going to take another 300 years for the the wage equity issue to be corrected if we just go gradually extrapolating from past experience. And I was up at Microsoft in San Francisco last week speaking to a group of 30 men and women who are so concerned about the women in science and technology issue, the pipeline and retention and how to attract and retain these great talented people. 
And one of the gentlemen, after hearing some of my stories, said, what do I tell my 12 and 16-year-old daughter? And I said, you know, tell them the U.S. is the third worst country in the developed world to be a woman executive. The only worst ones are Japan and India. And every other country in the world, including Russia, China, and Thailand, have a higher percentage of women executives. And why? I don't know. You got me. But I got tired of waiting for it. So I just started my own business. That's interesting because you've both had the opportunity to build yourself up as an executive within the, the business world and also to build your own business. You know, I'm trained as a physicist, so I have a master's degree in physics and a bachelor's degree in chemistry and physics, and I did experimental physics, really hands-on instrumentation, high vacuum, high voltages, very interesting things. So that, that's what led me to get into the world of high tech in the first place. That's fascinating. It, it doesn't sound like the sort of background that you normally associate with somebody who's going to go out and launch a business. That's right. You know, but the cool thing about physics is you tackle problems that are known to be pretty much impossible and you go for partial credit. And that is exactly what the business world is full of. And so when I was learning physics, I mean, I'd be sitting there crying over these problem sets that were taking 20, 30 hours. But now in the business world, I see something that looks impossible and I think, you know, even with a C, we can graduate. <laughs> I like that philosophy. So when you transitioned from the dot-com to, to starting your own business, how did that start for you? First of all, it started long before I left the dot-com bust. I started thinking about having my own business back in 1995 when I was working at Hewlett Packard. I worked at HP for 10 years and seven different jobs, most of them engineering, technology, manufacturing, program management. And I didn't like it. I really didn't like working for a big corporation, so I kept dreaming of having my own business. And I joined the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. Who was I? I was a wage slave, right? But I still tried to learn everything I could. I took classes at the Small Business Administration down in San Jose, learning how to start, run, and grow a business, and read a lot about it. And then I started a business just by sheer willpower and determination. I just started a little business doing some career coaching and helping people with resumes and did things on the side for years, literally for six years before I finally seriously launched my own business. So that's interesting. So you were, you were launching your business while you were still employed by other companies. I was prototyping it. My first 20 clients didn't pay me, but I told them, don't tell anybody. So I said, you know, I'll help you. And here's what it would be worth, but don't tell anybody. And who else might you know that might need my help? And so I had all these so-called clients who needed my career coaching. So then I could start talking about these clients. And then people said, oh, really? Can you help me too? And eventually I was able to bootstrap that having clients talking about clients to finding clients who would actually pay me. And then that led to doing workshops at the Career Action Center. And through a series of transformations, ultimately I started doing other kinds of consulting and coaching work. <laughs> well, I'm not going to let you get away with that through a series of transformations, yada, yada, yada. I want to hear about that process. Oh, my gosh. Well, I took a workshop from Barbara Fittipaldi where she challenged me on why do I keep getting in my own way? And I, you know, protested, oh, it's not me. It's the others. It's the world holding me back. But the truth was it was my own personal restrictions that were the biggest barrier to any progress. And after that, after I learned the technology of creating breakthroughs, which she kindly taught me, I started teaching workshops on this twice a year at my house. 
it was just a group of five or ten people at first, and it was for free. And I, we were doing collages and creating the fucking fabulous future, as I call it. And then we were working backwards from there in a process that I now know is lateral thinking and very much akin to strategic planning. So then after a while, the Career Action Center asked me, oh, do you want to teach a workshop for us? And I said, sure. And they looked at my proposal and they said, well, have you taught this workshop for anyone else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in my house, right? So I was able to bootstrap into doing workshops. And come to find out that I'm pretty entertaining and educational. It's a good combination called edutainment. So people like my workshops. And I just kept doing more and more of that until finally I ended up losing my job and starting my consulting business in product development. You know, I mean, it's hard to be a consultant because when you're a consultant working a lot of hours for a company, they want to hire you. So I ended up getting hired by one of my clients. And as soon as that happens... All of your power goes right out the window because now you're no longer a consultant. You're an employee like everybody else. So after that happened one time and I did that again, then I finally decided that's it. I'm being a real consultant this time. And then I started the real long road to growing a real business outside of any other employment. I don't think that a lot of people realize just how much more power you have as a consultant than when you're an employee inside of a company. Well, part of it is because you don't care as much if they don't listen to your advice. It's not so frustrating and stressful. For me, I have a little rule in my consulting business. I don't care more than my clients. I care, but I don't want to care more than you do. So I tell you what you need to know. It's up to you to make a decision. And I don't have all the facts either. But when you're an employee, it's just too personal. And yet so many people are still trying to target that employee track. And I know that there's almost a psychological difference between people who are suited for being employees versus people who are suited to being independent consultants. Well, it's scary being an independent consultant. Let me tell you, I liked having a steady paycheck. And when I first started out fully on my own in consulting, I didn't have a steady paycheck for two and a half years. I borrowed money against my house. I went deeply into debt. I thought I might have to sell my house in order to pay it off. And it was in part by, of course, hard work, but just being really lucky that I was able to turn it around in time not to have to sell my house. How did you have the confidence to know that this was the right thing to do when things were getting so challenging? You know, I'm not sure it was confidence so much as I was so miserable as a wage slave that I was determined to find a way. And then I kept playing this little game with myself where I would say, all right, I'm going to work on this and be a consultant for the next three months. And I'm going to keep going for two more months after I feel like giving up. And then at that point, I will give up. So I'd put a date on my calendar and say, okay, as of this date, I'm going to quit. And then that date would come and something would happen that would re-inspire me. I remember I, I reached that date one time where I said, okay, that's it. I'm quitting. I've gone on for two months longer than I felt like giving up. And then the week later, a client called and said, hey, we'd like you to go down to San Diego and give a speech. And I'm like, nah, I quit consulting. Oh, really? But we really need you to go. I'm like, well, what is it? Oh, it's this speech about product development life cycle. And, you know, one week isn't enough to do a good speech. And they're like, well, we don't care about giving a good speech. We just need someone to give a speech because we have this slot. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I didn't even negotiate price or anything. And then after the fact, you know, went so well, and then they paid me a lot of money. And I thought, hmm, I guess I'm in the game again. So there were a series of near misses where I could have easily given up. And just because of scrappiness or luck or the encouragement of some passerby, I didn't. 
It sounds like you, you have a natural outgoing nature and the ability to do public speaking is one of the things that I know some people find challenging about independent consulting. Yeah, well, I didn't start off that way. I started off really shy as a kid. And I remember in my undergraduate speech class, don't ask me why I even took that because I was on the science track. I asked my teacher, how could I prevent people from talking with me? <laughs> but then for some reason, I don't know how things changed. I guess I found my stand-up comic, my inner stand-up comic, and I just had such a blast doing most of these workshops. It was just fun for me. So I don't really feel like I'm giving a talk so much as giving a performance. And I try to jump into that performance mentality where I am performing a role. I'm not really being myself, but I'm being one of my authentic selves, but it's not the everyday person that I am. You've come up with a wide range of topics that you speak on at this point, I believe. Yes, I have developed a lot of topics. Thankfully, I've been challenged to do that through my work with Japanese companies. So I started off working with this wonderful executive woman from Japan. She's a Japanese executive, so you can imagine how difficult her life is. And she kept selling my consulting to different clients, this topic and that topic and another topic. And I would say, but, but I don't do that. And she said, oh, you, you're smart. You can do it. So I would have to go out and, and invent something and research it and learn all about it. And that happened again and again because I started off teaching communication and then I went into global leadership and then teams and then innovation, design thinking, creativity, and of course, project management. I could teach that very well. But she just pushed me like a crazy person to do things that I really didn't feel suited for, but I grew into. I, I love it that uh, I know a lot of people think that they, they have this imposter syndrome and you have to be an expert before you can do these things. It sounds like you, you broke right through that barrier. Imposter syndrome. It's funny you mentioned that. That is something that I have suffered through my whole life. Good friends of mine, the more accomplished, the worse it is. And that is something that men and women both really have to deal with is this, this fear that someday we'll be unmasked for the charlatans that we are shown to have no real value. <laughs> so how did you confront that with you for yourself? Well, I really have shifted my understanding of the kind of work I was doing over the years. When I first started doing workshops and coaching, I really thought I had to have the answers and help other people. And then I've come to understand that my job is to hold a mirror up to them so that they can see the greatness inside of them and to use a process I call generous listening that some people call generative listening, which is to listen to other people so that they can become more clear about their options, their gifts, and their choices going forward. And I was really humbled because I found out I could coach anybody, really, no matter how smart they are, as long as I shut up and let them tell me what they think and let them come to their own conclusions about what they should do. I like that. I like that. Is, is that something that you came upon yourself or did you study to learn that? I did start learning it through uh, Barbara Fittipaldi, but also through Sarah Hart when I learned about Time to Think. There's a book by Nancy Klein called Time to Think, Listening to Ignite the Human Mind. And I took a workshop about that kind of listening because I've, I've always been interested in listening as a powerful leadership skill. But this really put it so clearly about the power of listening and being listened to. And then I started to shift how I worked with my people in Japan, for example, just doing a little bit of facilitation and letting them do more and more of the activities and the talking. And I found out over the years, the less I spoke, the more they loved the workshop and the more value they got out of it. <laughs> 
It sounds like your own technique for leading workshops has really evolved too over the years. Yes. So I created something I call TEDA. So this is five or 10 minutes show a theory or some kind of information or content. Don't talk any more than five or 10 minutes and then introduce some kind of relevant exercise that puts this theory into practice in a psychological safe way and let people experience it in their bones, not just intellectually. And then do a discussion, have them break into small groups, get the flip charts out, write down some of their thoughts, maybe have some debriefing questions and then apply to their real business situation, ideally a real project that they're working on. So we normally do projects that are really relevant to the business, that are chartered and sponsored by the executive team as part of these programs. So that TEDA, you know, theory, exercise, discuss, and apply, go round and round with that. Some people cannot fit into that mold. I partnered with many people over the years who just insisted on lecturing. And once you have people sitting there snoring with their eyes closed, I got to fire you. I, I think that there's a comfort level for people who aren't comfortable with public speaking and they just want to lecture and they might not be as comfortable with that kind of interactive uh, exercise. But the TEDA approach sounds fascinating. Well, and it's not just sitting there and interacting with people in a chair. It's like get up and do thumb wrestling or get up and balance these peacock feathers or do this simulation of an email exercise or build a tower as tall as possible out of these blocks, right? And give people something that they can dive into where they can learn in a safe way those lessons that they'd have to destroy a company to learn otherwise. <laughs> That's true. Those are the valuable lessons to learn. Can you give me an example of, of one of your TEDA exercises that you put people through? Well, I'll just tell you a simple one, which is thumb wrestling. Anybody can do it. So I'll say, all right, everyone get up, find a partner who looks weak or tired, and let's do a little thumb wrestling. And then I say, you know, I'm a rich billionaire, and I'm going to pay you $1 million cash for every time you trap your opponent's thumb in the next 15 seconds. Are you ready? And then boom, go. And then most of these people, they struggle and they compete. And in the end, most of them have won absolutely nothing. Or one person won a million, the other one won zero. But there's a surprising number of people with zero, zero. Nobody won anything. Now, there's maybe one or two groups that have 10 million or 15 million that they've won. And it turns out they cooperated with each other. So in this case, I put the exercise first before the theory, because if we talked about win-win and playing win-win, it would just give it all away. So at the end, we say, look at what was the goal of thumb wrestling? Well, of course, it was just like in business. It was to win money, to get money. But instead, we competed and said things like, hey, I didn't get that much, but I got more than you. My side of the boat's not leaking. Okay, now how do we do this thumb wrestling in our real business situation? Where's it happening between engineering and sales or finance department and marketing, manufacturing? And start to think about where we're trying to come out with the least losses instead of the most gains. And then we can think about how could we maximize our gains in thumb wrestling? Well, of course, you can have both hands and you can have one person rapidly hitting the thumb of the other person's thumb and the other person can do the same on the other thumb and no trust is required and you can win $30 million each in 15 seconds. And then we start to think about, hey, wait a second, where could we create a bigger pie in the business world? Where could we stop arguing about who gets the crumbs and make the pie bigger and share it? So that's the kind of thing that helps people. 
And, oh, by the way, when you start to think about this, the way you measure success in thumb wrestling directly impacts your strategy. So if you measure your success based on how much you win more than the other guy, you fight and you compete. But if you measure your success on how much you both as a team win or you personally win, then you cooperate. So you got to be really careful how you measure success because it directly impacts strategy. Those are excellent learnings and I can see how they derive directly from the exercise and it makes it a very tangible lesson for people. Did you come up with those things yourself? Uh, mostly not. Mostly I just scoured the internet or I went to some interesting workshops where I learned some of these things. You know, there's hundreds of these games out there. The pity is if you look through 50 of these kinds of exercises, most of them are like, oh my God, gag me with a front end loader. It's too touchy feely or it's too obvious or there's nothing relevant and meaty enough to waste people's time on. So you got to pick through a whole lot of exercises to find the good ones. So I have a partner I've worked with for many years, Jeff Richardson. He's educated as an experiential educator, kind of an outdoor ropes course kind of guy. He's helped me put together a lot of exercises over the years. And I just collect them. I have an Excel spreadsheet. And if you want a cool exercise about pretty much anything, I probably have one of them in my list that I can find for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. I wanted to ask you about that, about your working with a partner. I, I know you look at your website, you just see it's a massive amount of workshops and courses and seminars and things, keynote speaking, etc. It doesn't seem like something that one person could be doing all alone, not even somebody with your energy. <laughs> no, actually, I've partnered over the years, of course, with my agent in Tokyo. They've done a lot to expand my business globally. And then I recruited a half dozen people from the Silicon Valley to go to Tokyo and other countries on behalf of these Japanese businesses. So I was the program director creating that team. And then recently I formed with my colleagues from these Japanese workshops, I formed Silicon Valley Alliances with five other facilitators and one biz dev guy. We just launched that this year and we are just having a blast working together. It's, it's really impossible to do anything that scale by yourself. And of course, I've had tons of help from all the people who liked my work and said, hey, let me introduce you to this next possibility or come into my next place where I'm working. Because in the Silicon Valley, people change jobs. So it's a good thing. When they leave one job, they go to the next company, they bring me along with them. So I've had so much help from friends and raving fans of the Scrappy Way. <laughs> That's fantastic. I was wondering if you could take me through that transition. When you talked about when you started, when you're starting your business, you were working definitely all independently, and then you started working with other people. How did it start to grow into something that you were doing with more than one person? Well, I was working at UC Extension teaching some classes on project leadership, and that's when I met Jeff, and I invited him to join me. So for, from the very beginning, if I had work, if it was paying or not, I would invite other people to join me who wanted to grow their businesses because I thought, well, someday we'll have more work than any of us can do. So I was making almost nothing teaching this class. And I said, hey, Jeff, you want to earn a percent of nothing? <laughs> so I paid him a little bit to help me. And then I've made a habit of that when I had any kind of business that I could justify it. I'd bring an assistant or a partner or a co-facilitator. And the thing that really got things going was when I met this woman, Yuko Shibata. I met her here through my UC Extension work. And so she said, let's go to Japan and do this work in Japan. And so she had me recruit Dr. Francine Gordon and several other people who are still working with me today for the first workshops over in Tokyo. 
So it was my job to connect. And it turns out I'm a pretty good connector. And so if you tell me, hey, Kimberly, I need a seven foot tall Japanese blonde woman who plays bass guitar, I can probably find her. <laughs> I mean, those are some of my skills is being able to connect people to other people who need them. And so I gathered a team together to make this Japanese business happen. I think being a good connector is, is emerging as one of the most critical skills in the new millennium. And it's uh, it's not something that people, I think, thought about so much in the previous millennium. And the technology is changing so radically. I'm curious how you do that. Well, I know everybody's crazy about LinkedIn, but honestly, personal connections work well for me. I have a couple of communities that I participate in. One is my home. Uh, our home has been a center of community for over a decade. I started monthly drum circles at my house, and we did that for many years every month. And then we started doing musical events, live music, jazz, and different kinds of really high-quality music. And people would come who wanted to enjoy the music. And then I also have a every two or three months I have at my house a consulting collaboratory where 20 to 30 independent consultants come to learn from each other for a half a day. We do a couple of keynotes, we do some icebreakers and some exercises and some networking. So I create these opportunities to really meet people face to face and look them in the eye and network like that. Now, of course, I also get involved with the Silicon Valley Engineering Leadership Community. That's where I met Ron Lishti long ago through the SV Forum incarnation of that. And there's a couple of organizations I participate in, including Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, which is now called Watermark, and also the Association for Corporate Growth. But I would say for the most part, it's personal connections. You know, I've worked for Hewlett Packard for 10 years, and then I worked for three failed startup companies, which is so cool because all those people scattered everywhere. So now I know people who work all over the valley because, well, we all lost our jobs together. And for some reason, they remember me. <laughs> and, and if I don't hear from them in five or 10 years and suddenly I get a message on LinkedIn, I know it's because they lost their job and they need help finding another one. So I always welcome that kind of ping. But yeah, mostly it's personal connection. I, I think that's really inspiring these days when everybody starts talking about, you know, LinkedIn this and Twitter that and Facebook that, that you're really leveraging those face-to-face -face communications. Well, we are human beings. We are animals. And I think that's so important. What kind of trust can you build with people that you've never met in person? You know, I'm a bit of a skeptic about that. I do have some friends and colleagues and collaborators I've never met. One of the authors of Scrappy Women in Business is from South Africa. She and I have never met in person. Uh, the author of one of my scrappy books, Michael Horton, Scrappy General Management. I've never met him in person. But, you know, you really have to be careful about what you commit to these virtual relationships until there's some reason to build trust. Yeah, I can see that. And these days, of course, people are starting to work remotely with people and have teams that are distributed all around the world. And they're actually creating relationships with people they've never met face to face, but they spend, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week in a Slack room together, chatting and on Google Hangouts talking. That's true. And the research on virtual teams is very clear about this, that if you first meet face to face, even briefly to get to know each other and then work virtually, you get far greater results. Yes, you can build trust and relationships and teams without ever meeting. But the evidence is clear that if you really want a team to build strong trust quickly and in lasting ways, they've got to meet in person. That is interesting. Do you have a reference for that? I can send you the data, yes. I have it in my slides, in my team slides, and I'll send you the information about that. Fantastic. And actually, if you have a, a link to your slides, we can include that in the show notes as well. Oh, okay, sure. You know, you, you've started this business locally, and it's become international. Is that what you were expecting? 
Not at all. I mean, of course, I dreamed about it. Here's what I did. Every year, starting in 1995, I would have this creating a vision of your future session for myself or for me and a couple of friends, or I would do a workshop. And we would make these collages and say, well, it seems impossible, but if anything were possible, blah, blah, blah. And we'd make these crazy lists of things that probably won't happen, but if they did, they'd make our hair fly back. And then I had a thinking partner, Sherry Ream, and we would meet every week and say, well, here's my big dream, but that'll never happen. And before I could say, but that'll never happen, she would say, sure it could. I think it could happen. Tell me more. (laughs) And so we would just have this crazy rose-colored glasses session half an hour of me spouting off about my dreams and half an hour of her doing it. We did that for about a year. And then I would write all these things down in a letter to myself every year saying, Dear Kimberly, it's a year from now and wow, it's amazing what's happened. And I would put all this crazy stuff in there. And then I started making lists like this in Excel. You know, what are the big crazy dreams I have for my future that will never happen? But if they did happen, woohoo! And oh my God, they started happening and they started happening more. And then I said, oh my gosh, I'm not asking big enough. And so I started making my dreams bigger and bigger. And so I put things down like, have an internationally well-known book translated into other languages, blah, 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 working globally. And then this stuff would happen. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know what I got to ask for now is world peace, end to hunger, clean water for the billion people who don't have it. I mean, where shall we stop? Let's keep going. So I I just got crazy with it, started asking for everything, including clean water, healthy food, education, clean power, housing, health care for all inhabitants of planet Earth and a sustainable future for the world. You're still working on those. Well, yeah, but I'm not doing it alone. Good thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's really the that really seems to be the point. And I, I think that pe- people have started to use the term mastermind to talk about groups like the ones that you're talking about. That's right. That's exactly what it was called back then. My friend Sherry told me, hey, let's do a mastermind group. And I'm like, master what? And so we did it and it worked so well. And we just kept just going from there. And I now I think I understand the technology of why it works. It's not magic, but it seems like magic. But the brain is a pattern recognition device. And if you put a pattern in there that says, look for opportunities that look like such and such, when one of those things crosses your field of vision, grab it. But if there's no pattern in there, there's nothing to match. So we're kind of like fish swimming around in the ocean, completely blind to water. And the water is the possibilities and opportunities. And we can't see them until we put something in our brain that's a pattern of what we'd like to create in our life. And most people, to be honest, only put patterns in there of what they don't want. So that's all they see. Yeah, I think that's common to a lot of people. And it's one of the things, the people who talk to me about wanting to start something of their own, they focus more on the things that they're afraid of rather than the things that they're hoping for. Well, there's a lot of technology out there to help them, including Joel Barker's paradigm shifting question, which goes like this. What today seems impossible, but if it were possible, would transform your life for the better or your group, or your team, or your organization, or your job. What seems impossible today, but if it were possible, would transform this into something that would be woohoo. And that question allows you to jump over the reasonable objections that it's unrealistic, not practical, not feasible, and just say, let's just think about the possibility without knowing how. And later, let's build a structure underneath of that of how to achieve it. I like that it takes those barriers out of the way and allows you to think with the success condition. Yes, and the thing that most of us do, and I'm included, is we tend to rush to solution. As soon as we're presented with a problem, we think of an answer, but we don't think about exactly what is the problem we're trying to solve. 
Why is it important? Who are the stakeholders? Just like in thumb wrestling, we didn't think about the other person as part of the stakeholder ecosystem. We didn't think about the goal is to make money and how could we optimize and maximize both of our incomes. We just said, how can I win and make the other guy lose? And that's a natural brain reaction. And the Harvard Negotiation Project has studied this and found that the first instinct is normally win-lose. Then if you push yourself, you can come up with a win-win solution that's superior to anything that you might win in a win-lose competition. It's challenging to think in a win-win way when you've been trained win-lose your entire life. And it's natural to be win-lose, but that's survival Darwinism, I guess. Yeah. I, when you started off with these masterminds, one of the things I was wondering about is, did you also get any personal coaching? Absolutely. And I still get personal coaching. Oh, yes. You can't coach yourself. It's like biting your own teeth. Well, tell me about that. Well, right now I'm getting coaching from Dr. Edgar Schein, who's the world-renowned expert on organizational culture. He's the father of organizational culture. In fact, he coined that term many years ago. He's 87 years old, and every month I get to sit and have lunch with him and listen to his wisdom and get his guidance and support on the challenges that I'm facing that are too big for me to figure out by myself. That's interesting. And you say you've been getting coaching all along. Oh, yeah. I started off getting coaching way back in the 90s because a coach is somebody who can believe for you when you can't believe for yourself and who can help you sort out the tangled mess of ideas in your brain and come up with, well, here's the situation. Here's the options. Here's which ones I favor or don't for what reasons. And then have the courage to commit to some action and then hold you accountable to do something, you know, rather than just talking about it. So that accountability partner is really important. So the, the mastermind groups are like co-coaching, but I've also paid a lot of money over the years for so-called real coaches, sometimes a one-time intervention, sometimes on an ongoing basis for a short period of time, or like Dr. Shine, I've been seeing him for about a year and a half. It's interesting there. You know, it's making a personal investment in yourself, getting a coach, and it can be challenging finding somebody you resonate with and you believe is qualified. Oh, that's right. Well, I need somebody who's super smart and who can deal with my unique personality traits, shall we say. And I really don't want people who are going to give me advice because I know from my own coaching work that the advice they give me is pretty much out of context and they really can't understand the complexity of the landscape of my life that I'm making decisions in. So I need somebody who will let me make the decisions and will help me clarify my thinking rather than telling me what I should do. I mean, sometimes I have sought out mentors. Now, that's a whole different thing. Mentoring is important, and that's where I want advice from someone who's really done it. But in general, I get coaching because I need someone to help me sort things out in my own head that I can't figure out myself. I love that. Can you tell me a little bit more about seeking out and meeting mentors? Oh, okay. So it's really hard to just walk up to someone and say, would you please mentor me? It's a huge investment you're asking somebody to make in you. Yeah, so I like the micro-mentoring example. So what I do is I go up to somebody at a conference that I've heard speak or someone in the work environment or someone I've met in some way and I say, you know what, I find your story fascinating and I would love to sit down with you over a cup of tea and hear about your challenges that you faced and how you've overcome those challenges and get some of your wisdom and insights uh, that perhaps uh, you've learned over the years. And they're more than happy normally to sit down for a cup of tea. And then you start listening to them deeply and generously without interrupting them. They'll stay there for hours because it's so rare that people are listened to. 
And people honestly love to share their stories, and they're very rarely asked and really listened to when they tell their stories about their lives. So I've had great success getting people to meet with me at least once. And then at the end, usually they say, let's do this again. Or else I can say, would you mind if we did this again from time to time? So you can get someone once or maybe a couple of times or once every few months. Occasionally, I've had a more um, standard mentor when I was working at HP. But for the most part, micro-mentoring works real well. I like also that you're not looking at a, at a mentor as what can I get from this person, but more as how can I have a conversation and learn from this person. Absolutely. And I think that they benefit as much as we do. And in fact, some of my mentors have said, well, it's not really mentoring now, it's co-mentoring. And I said, or maybe it's tormentoring. <laughs> tormentoring. You've got to go register that domain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. You are taking on so much and you've got so many things that you're trying to juggle in your life. What does your routine look like? Well, I don't have much of a routine, but when I'm home, I get up and I go into the hot tub. That's what I look forward to. And at the end of the day, if I have enough time, I go back there again. Aside from that, when I'm traveling on business, I'm full on pretty much all day with the client, all night with clients or with other colleagues having dinner. And when I come home, I'm full on with the networking in Silicon Valley and the amazing wealth of possibilities, things to do here, people to connect with. But I don't really have much of a predictable routine. So I have to keep my calendar really carefully because, oh, that, there's no such thing as an eight to five routine. <laughs> Do you manage your calendar yourself or do you have an assistant? I do. Oh, nobody would be able to understand it. When some people see my calendar, they say, what the hell is that? So, yeah, I have little color coding and things that I want to remember, but I don't have to do and they're not really appointments. So, yeah, I have my own little processes and tools. <laughs> okay, I want to know what kind of tools you use. Well, I could not survive without Google wikis, you know, so-called Google sites. I have at least a half dozen sites that I'm using actively. I created one really big, massive Google app site to manage all this business with Japan. And you know, it's really hard to get other people to use these tools because they want to write to you and say, oh, which hotel should I stay at? Or how do I get from the airport to the hotel? And I say, no, look at the wiki. It's all on the wiki. It's the same question people have been asking every month for the last eight years. I'm not going to answer it in email. So getting other people to use these tools is hard. But when you're creating anything where there's some complexity, I think making a little Google site and capturing all the information in a hierarchical way that's HTML and, you know, it's structured and you can click through things and you can attach files and you can link to a Google Drive. That's just heaven. That, for me, that's an electronic project notebook. And I even start those when I'm working on things all by myself. I like that. I also noticed that you're a prolific blogger. I had, in the past, written a lot of blogs. I've been writing for Project Connections for about 10 years, every two or three months. So those blogs get posted on my personal blog as well. But Project Connections is where they get seen because they have over 120,000 people on their distribution list. And then I do post other people's blogs that are relevant on Refling Consulting and also Scrappy Women in Business. If people have like women in business or anybody with anything relevant to women in business, they're welcome to send me a blog for Scrappy Women. And I will put it on scrappywomen.biz. I like that. It's also a good way to consolidate those pieces of information that people might want, want to go through the path of your wiki to find. Well, the way I wrote my book was to start by writing a bunch of blogs over three years. So I wrote articles for Project Connections related to Scrappy Project Management, and then I gathered them together, and I just had a few chapters missing. So that really made it possible for me to write a book. 
I was wondering about that because a book is a huge long-term challenge and trying to organize that kind of a process can be amazing for some people. Now, I got a coach for that or a mentor for that, somebody who really understood writing and publishing. And she helped me brainstorm the table of contents. And once that was done, then it was just a matter of going through the years of writing those articles and filling in the missing pieces. And then, of course, my publisher, he's great, Mitchell Levy. No, he made it possible. He made it easy to publish scrappy project management. And I don't think he ever expected it to be that popular. I mean, it was translated into Japanese by Nikkei Business Press. I mean, I actually got a message from this organization saying, blah, 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 translate your book into Japanese, $5,000. I thought they wanted me to pay them, so I didn't even answer the email. Then my friend in Japan said, let me see the email. And she looked at it and said, you're so stupid. They want to pay you. So she called them up apologizing for her stupid friend. Yeah, it was about 2010. They published it in Japanese. So it's really incredible what came out of just putting these blogs together and cobbling together a book out of them. That's wonderful. And you decided to go with a publisher rather than self-publish. It's a very small publisher. When I first started working with Mitchell, he only had about a couple of dozen books And I decided I wanted to have a publisher because I wanted to have a channel through which my books would be seen. And it's not much financial difference. I mean, I had a pretty good deal with him because I was one of his first authors. And I still get checks from him. Every three months, he'll bring me a check for the books that he's selling. And I I actually was the first one to upload my book on the Kindle on Amazon because he didn't want to adopt the Kindle platform. And so I get money from Kindle every month. Crazy. So I want to ask you, in between where your business is now and global world peace, what do you think your next hurdle is? What are you what are you looking at for your next challenge? Well, I'm working on the Silicon Valley Sustainability Center. This is a big dream that started with Peter Meisen down in San Diego. He's a fan of Buckminster Fuller and Buckminster Fuller's dream of a world that works for everybody. So about six years ago, Peter prototyped a visualization center in San Diego. 12 projectors, 12 screens, an immersive environment where you could show lots of data at the same time so that people could look at complex sets of data or complex situations and come to a shared conclusion about what the heck's going on and make better decisions quicker. So last summer, I met him and started talking about his dreams. And he said, I really want to do something in the Silicon Valley. So I said, well, I'll help you. And so since then, we've been looking at how might we build We want to build a facility here that people could go inside and visualize data together, like a giant map on the floor and all over the ceiling, like a big, like a war room, but for the future of our planet. And this war room would be fighting for the survival of the species and planet Earth. And we could visualize together and understand the complex problems of our day so that we could come to fact-based decisions. You know, better decisions quicker. That's our little tagline. So we started talking to NASA. NASA Ames has a group called Planetary Sustainability, and they are committed to these kinds of things. And so it looks like we might actually make some progress partnering with NASA Ames Planetary Sustainability to prototype something like this, maybe in one of their buildings, maybe in a pop-up canvas structure temporary structure, or maybe get it in a real building. Maybe Google will build us an $8 million facility to do this in. If anybody could get Google to do that, it sounds like you're the one. I'm not working on this alone. We have this Silicon Valley Sim Center group, and it's all volunteer and just whenever people are available. But boy, as soon as we start talking about this to anybody, they get all lit up about it, and they want to contribute. So I'm pretty sure someone is going to make this happen because we do need a place to come together to discuss these hard problems 
and to imagine and visualize together. Virtual reality and augmented reality may be helpful, but as we spoke about before, being there face-to-face, in-person, is going to be so important for building these communities. And what we imagine is going to happen is this. You know how the Silicon Valley has become the center of entrepreneurship and people come from all over the world to learn how do you be like Silicon Valley? Well, we want Silicon Valley to be a sustainable region that inspires people all over the world to come here and say, how did Silicon Valley get to be such a sustainable region and how can we learn from them? And I think we're hot on the trail of that. That's really exciting. And it's, it sounds like it matches really well with the way that you started your own business. Like create this face-to-face opportunity for people to meet and start networking and build on those relationships. And we're not doing it alone. And as soon as we start talking about this, we find out the Global Footprint Network is interested. Sustainable Silicon Valley is interested. Mariana Grossman is leading Minerva Ventures on this kind of path. There's so many people who want to see a sustainable region emerge from the San Francisco Bay Area. And what better place than here to demonstrate what's possible on all of the planet? Absolutely, I agree. So tell me, how can our listeners find you online and find out more about the work you're doing? My website, KimberlyWeefling.com, talks about my work. Weefling.com is more comprehensive, kind of a backlog of everything I have done. And my newest venture, SiliconValleyAlliances.com, is talking about my collaboration with my six colleagues who have been doing this global leadership and team effectiveness work. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on Hack the Process. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for talking. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.